Welcome to a look ahead. We're delighted that you've decided to join us. We studied the Sabbath school lessons as prepared by the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And this series of lessons is on the book of Ephesians. Of course, that's that small six-chapter book in just about in the middle of the New Testament. This is lesson number four in this series for July 22 of 2023. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Our loving and powerful Father, we are beginning to get a taste of what Paul had in mind as he wrote this letter. We don't know where he got the document to to write on. We don't know if he had a secretary help him to do the writing. And how would he do that in a Roman prison? You know, wondering from morning to morning whether the day would come for him to have his head chopped off. And yet here he's written this marvelous book with glories and powers and and praises to God. Help us to catch the Spirit is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. So how does God rescue us? Jim? The Bible Study Guide on October 14, 1987, 18-month-old Jessica McClure, Jessica McClure, was playing in her aunt's backyard when she fell 22 feet into an abandoned well. Her plight attracted media from around the world to Midland, Texas. A global audience watched baby Jessica sleeping, crying, singing, and calling out for her mother. They watched as emergency workers piped fresh air down the well. Finally, 58 hours after Jessica's fall, the worldwide audience watched as Jessica was released from the 8-inch well casing that had trapped her for more than two days. Photographer Scott Shaw's Pulitzer Prize-winning photograph captured the moment. A rescue cable bisects the 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 worried face of Jessica's rescuers looking down at the bandaged bundle at the heart of the drama, Baby Jessica. There's nothing quite as gripping as a good rescue story. And let me interrupt for just a second. I don't know, how many of you can remember this? I mean, it was, yeah. It was like TV 24-7 almost for a couple of weeks. I mean, it it was an amazing situation. Okay, I'm sorry, go ahead. Okay, and Paul in Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 10, gives up gives us an up-close and personal view of the grandest, most sweeping rescue mission of all time, God's efforts to redeem humanity. The drama of the story is heightened by knowing that we are not mere spectators of someone else's rescue, but witnesses of our own, from the Bible study guide. Wow. You could... could uh, Parallel with that would be redemption, yeah. But uh, which is all, uh, it's it's the process really is education, yeah. For the for the for the human being. Yeah. Well, sure, of course. Um, and recognizing that, I mean, baby Jessica, if they hadn't been able to do anything, she would have died there. Sure, and that that's that's our situation. If nobody does anything about, if God hadn't done anything about rescuing us, we were all dead. Just simple as that. This lesson will focus on what we can learn about God's rescue plan from Ephesians chapter 2 now, verses 1 to 10. Carrie? Okay. In the past you were spiritually dead because of your disobedience and sins. 
At that time, you followed the world's evil way. You obeyed the ruler of the spiritual powers in space, the spirit who now controls the people who disobey God. Actually, all of us were like them and lived according to our natural desires, doing whatever suited the wishes of our own bodies and minds. In our natural condition, we, like everyone else, were destined to suffer God's anger. But God's mercy is so abundant and his love for us is so great that while we were spiritually dead in our disobedience, he brought us to life with Christ. It is by God's grace... Uh, I can't read what's the... No, he's got to move his hand, sorry. But God's mercy is so abundant and his love for us is so great that while we were spiritually dead in our disobedience, he brought us to life with Christ. It is by God's grace that you have been saved. In a union with Christ Jesus, he raised us up with him to rule with him in the heavenly world. He did this to demonstrate that for all time to come, the extraordinary uh, greatness of his grace and the love he showed us in Christ Jesus. For it is by God's grace that you have been saved through faith. It is not the result of your own efforts, but God's gift, so that no one can boast about it. God has made us what we are, and in our union with Christ Jesus, he has created us for a life of good deeds, which he has already prepared for us to do. It's from American Bible wow. Society. Okay, we're going to be working our way back and forth to this passage. But let's stop and think about that for just a moment. When rebellion set in on this little tiny world, how easy it would have been for God to just say, start over. Why do we need it? I mean, well, he has a whole universe out there. Worlds and I, we don't even have any idea how much stuff is out there. He could have just said, you know. And what would the, all those... Well, that's the question. Think of God just... Yeah. But, but, but you also bring up many times the idea of God's wrath as just turning away or just mm-hmm. drawing back. And what if he had done that? Well, same, but, same result, I think. He, I mean, the, 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 you, ha, you need to take that question all the way back to heaven. Why didn't he just do that with the devil? And for those who want to hear the clear explanation of that, read the chapter, It is Finished in Desire of Ages. I don't have time to go through all of it right now, but clearly, exactly what Myra has suggested, what would people, what would the beings, even the angels have thought? You know, here you create something and then... You know, look what happens if you get out of line, right? And he wouldn't have had to do anything except yeah. just get withdraw. Back. But it still looks the same, I think. I, I have uh, suggested a number of times, many of you have heard me say this, suppose a million years from now, God, even sooner than that, when the whole sin problem is gone, God goes back to creating other beings. And suppose that sometime one of those beings decides to rebel. What would God do, do you think? I've suggested that God would say, all you people who live through the problem on earth, gather around. Here's somebody who wants to start the great controversy all over again. 
what do you think I should do? And we would say, just step back. But first, God would try to reason with that person. He would say, look at what happened the last time somebody tried this. Here's the whole panorama of what happened on planet Earth. I'm sorry. Thank you, Gordon, for putting it. And if he still wants to rebel, we would say to God, okay, just step back. Not just us, but the beings of the rest of the universe that have seen us would say that. So Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, tell of the plan of salvation in three distinct parts. They are briefly summarized in Ephesians 2, 5 as follows. Jennifer? From the Bible study guide, number one, we were dead in our trespasses. Number two, God made us alive together with Christ. Number three, by God's grace, you have been saved. Okay, this lesson emphasizes three major themes of Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 that describe the dynamic process of personal salvation. One, what is the meaning of dead to sin? We're going to, dead in sin, we're going to read that, about that. What is the nature of sinful living? Two, what does it mean to be raised with Christ to new life in him? And three, what does it mean to be saved by grace through faith? So, number one, going back up there, what does it mean to be dead in sin? What is the nature of a sinful living? Dwayne? Well, Paul in Ephesians 1 highlights God's overarching plan of salvation in Christ at the universal level. In chapter 2, the apostle explains in more detail the way God operates in our salvation at the individual level. After humans left the Garden of Eden, they entered a condition that Paul calls dead in trespasses and sins, in Ephesians 2.1. In this condition, humans are dead in their sins in the sense of being controlled by both internal forces, sinful tendencies, and external forces, the devil and the world. Humans in this condition cannot hope for a life with God Rather, they are children of wrath, Ephesians 2.3. The only hope for us is to become resurrected, to ascend, and to be exalted with Christ, Ephesians 2, 6 and 7. Yeah, wow. Think about where we are, where we should have been if God didn't do anything, and where he wants to take us. Myra? Ephesians 2, 1-3. In the past, you were spiritually spiritually dead, because of your disobedience and sins. At that time, you followed the world's evil way. You obeyed the ruler of the spiritual powers in space, the spirit who now controls the people who disobey God. Actually, all of us were like them and lived according to our natural desires, doing whatever suited the wishes of our own bodies and minds. In our natural condition, we, like everyone else, we're destined to suffer God's anger. Good news, Bible. Okay, two questions there. We need to talk about God's anger, wrath in just a moment. But do any of you know anybody who operates out of selfishness? I, do, don't, I know a bunch know? of people here around this table, <laughs> especially right here. somebody that doesn't work that way. <laughs> okay, you mean maybe this is talking about us, huh? When reading passages like this one, let us never forget what the Bible teaches about God's wrath or God's anger. God's wrath is simply his turning away and loving disappointment from those who do not want him anyway and are running away from him as fast as they can. 
Thus God leaves them to reap the inevitable and awful consequences of their own rebellious choices. God still pursues them, but he allows them the freedom to leave. And there's a whole handout on that if you um, want to look at it right there or you, ha- you ask for our, one of our, our handouts or look it up yourself in under uh, theox.org, that's T-H-U-X dot O-R-G, wrath or anger, as described in the book of Judges and other books in the Bible. So the wrath of God is very different than what you read in Webster's or even the uh, Oxford Complete Dictionary. What does James say about our sinful tendencies? James 1, 14 and 15. But people are tempted when they are drawn away and trapped by their own evil desires. Then their evil desires conceive and give birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. And Romans, Romans 6.23 For sin pays its wage, death. But God's free gift is eternal life in union with Christ Jesus our Lord. Both from Good News Bible. Okay, so how many people think that it's sin that kills sinners and how many people think that it's God who kills sinners? 99.9% think it's God that kills what does the Bible say, just as plain as can be? Sin pays its wage, death. So what does sin do to us? And here's a real question. I wish someone would just explain this to me in nice, clean, simple terms. What happened to Adam and Eve after they sinned? Prior to that event, they looked forward excitedly to walking with their Creator in the cool of the evening. But after their sin, they ran and tried to hide from Him when he called to them. Why? What had changed? Jerry? From Ellen White's writings? Mm-hmm. But after his Adam's sin, he could no longer find joy in holiness, and he sought to hide from the presence of God. Such is still the condition of the unrenewed heart. It is not in harmony with God and finds no joy in communion with him. The sinner could not be happy in God's presence. He would shrink from the companionship of holy beings. Could he, an unrepentant sinner, be permitted to enter heaven? It would have no joy for him. The spirit of unselfish love that reigns there, every heart responding to the heart of an infinite love, would touch no answering chord in his soul. His thoughts, his interests, his motives would be alien to those that actuate the sinless dwellers there. He, the sinner, would be a discordant note in the melody of heaven. Heaven would be to him a place of torture. Wow. He would long be hidden from him who is its light in the center of its joy. It is no arbitrary decree on the part of God that excludes the wicked from heaven. They are shut out by their own unfitness for its companionship. The glory of God would be to them a consuming fire. They would welcome destruction, but they might be hidden from the face of him who died to redeem them. Ellen White steps wow. to Christ. Wow, wow. Uh, there's a story told. This is a, a, a fa- I shouldn't call it a fanciful story. It's a toy story told to try to illustrate a point, but I think it's a good one. Um, a man dies and he goes to the heavenly gates and there's St. Peter and he's saying, oh, you know, welcome, how's everything? You're about to enter heaven, and then when you enter heaven, you're going to be here permanently. Is there anything you would like to do or say before you enter? 
And man says, yeah, I've always wondered what that other place was like. So Peter calls over one of the angels and says, could you take this guy over down to the other place and just let him see what it's like? So off they go and they, they show up in this other place. And he's looking at the people and they're just look like skin on bones. I mean, they were just terrible. And like, you know, how, how are they even alive? And then he hears this bell, ding, ding, ding. What's that? What's the dinner bell? He thought the dinner bell. These people like they haven't look like they haven't had anything to eat for for a long time. So he said, "Well, come and watch." So they go over there, and lo and behold, before you get into the dining room, you have to pass through a door, and at the door there's a couple of angels, and you have to put your arms out like this, and they put a tube over each arm like that. So they would go in and they would sit down, and here it is. It's a fairly narrow table, and there's food, just all kinds of food, up and down, back and forth. Here's everybody just trying to get, they could get a hold of the food, but they couldn't get into their mouth, and pretty soon the bell would ring, and they would all have to leave again without having tasted anything. And the man says, oh, that was awful, awful, awful. And so he goes up to heaven, and, St. Peter says, did you see it? Yeah, I said, okay, well, come on in. Lo and behold, he gets there and ding, ding, there's a bell. What was that? Well, that's the dinner bell. Oh, but everybody looked happy and healthy and so forth. And so they all go into the building. They all get, go up to the door of the building and there's the angels. And they got to put your arms out and these things go on both arms like this. And you go into the thing and everybody just picks up the food and feeds the person across from them. And that's, that's a really good picture of the difference between the two places, I think. Well, are you trying to say it's the attitude of the person that makes the difference like between heaven and <clears throat> and uh, eternal torture, if Absolutely. there is such a place? Could those here? I'm reading on from Ellen White. Those whose lives have been spent in rebellion against God be suddenly transported to heaven and witness the high the holy state of perfection that ever exists there, every soul filled with love, every countenance beaming with joy, and rapture in music and melodious strains rising in honor of God and the Lamb, and ceaseless streams of light flowing upon the redeemed from the face of him who sitteth upon the throne, could those whose hearts are filled with hatred of God, of truth and holiness, mingle with the heavenly throng and join their songs of praise, could they endure the glory of God and the Lamb? No, no. Years of probation were granted them that they might form characters for heaven. But they have never trained the mind to love purity. They have never feared the... Uh, I'm sorry. They never learned the language of heaven and now it is too late. A life of rebellion against God has unfitted them for heaven. Its purity, holiness, and peace would be torture to them. The glory of God would be a consuming fire. They would long to flee from that holy place. They would welcome destruction that they might be hidden from the face of him who died to redeem them. The destiny of the wicked is fixed by their own choice. Their exclusion from heaven is voluntary with themselves and just and merciful on the part of God. Great Controversy 542. Two places now we've had the word redeem and redemption. Ellen White says redemption is education. Yeah. There's no, well, there's no shortcut. What, what's the difference between the good people and the bad people on these? It's a question. How do you respond to the education? They don't want to listen. So yeah. he re- respects your decision. <clears throat> well, Jim, I'll let you read the next one there. 
Okay, from also from Ellen White, the final judgment scene taking place at the third coming. Satan sees that his excuse me, that his voluntary rebellion has unfitted him for heaven. He has trained his powers to war against God. The purity, peace, and harmony of heaven would be to him supreme torture. His accusations against the mercy and justice of God are now silenced. The reproach which he has endeavored to cast upon Jehovah rests wholly upon himself, and now Satan bows down and confesses the justice of his sentence. From the Great Controversy, page 670. And where did she get that idea from? Do you know in the Bible? Philippians. Right out of Philippians 2. Yep. So it is clear that neither Satan nor any of the wicked would be happy to be taken to heaven. It would be, do I dare say it? Hell to them. Supreme torture for them. How did that happen? Why is it that some people will be rejoicing and thankful and singing and praising God and other people who are made out of the same material, descended from the same line of human beings, it would be torture to them. Why? Our attitude, our paradigm, our view of God. Wow. So what are our chances for salvation as a result of our own efforts? What does it mean to be dead in trespasses and sin? Carrie? First, dead in trespasses and sins points to a literal death. Sin is essentially antithetical to God and life. To be in sin is to negate God and life. Paul emphasizes that the wages of sin is death. That's from Romans 6.23. Being in sin and remaining in sin leads to death. See also 1 John 5.16. Literal death, a complete annihilation of the totality of the human being. Being in sin is being condemned to death. It is tantamount to being dead. Let me interrupt for just a second. We have a, we have a word for that in the Bible. What's it called? Two words for it. The second death. Yeah, yeah. Okay, go ahead. Uh, this death? Yeah. This death does not refer only to the body. The human being who participates and chooses to remain in sin will be dead in his or her entirety in all aspects without any surviving elements. Second, dead in trespasses and sin is a spiritual and moral condition. To be dead in trespasses and sins is to be dead to God. For humans to be dead in trespasses and sins does not mean they cannot perceive God's love, justice, or call, or that they cannot recognize their own decadent state. To state otherwise would lead to the concept of predestination, but humans can and do perceive God's revelation and call. For this reason, they are, quote, without excuse, as Romans one nineteen through 21. The problem arises when they perceive God's call of grace but decide that all is well with them and that they will be better off if they go their own way, claiming they can change themselves and fix the world by themselves. It's from Isaiah 5.21, Romans 1.21 through 23. Uh, see also Genesis 11 
uh, one, one through five. This warped thinking, however, sinks them deeper in the mire of sin. It's from Romans one twenty four through twenty no through wow. thirty two. So now <clears throat> that sounds like a pretty comprehensive kind of situation, doesn't it? How much is included in this sin condition? From the Bible study guide. In his letter to the Ephesians, Paul illustrates this lost condition with the troop of walking in, quote, the course of this world, from Ephesians 2, 2, fulfilling the cravings, the lusts, the desires, and the thoughts of the flesh, from Ephesians 2, 3. By doing so, the unrenewed reach the point wherein they, quote, call evil good and good evil, and substitute, quote, darkness for light and light for darkness, from Isaiah 5, 20. This state con- constitutes not only moral confusion, but moral rebellion against God. Wow. On page 54 of our Bible study guide there. These sinful desires were all things that the Ephesians were doing as acts of worship in the temple of Artemis Diana. In ancient Ephesus, the magnificent temple of Artemis Diana, was uh, Artemis is the Greek and Diana is the Latin, was considered to be a holy place, thus even the fertility rituals involved all kinds of sexual immor- involving all kinds of sexual immorality were thought to promote religion. Wow. Dwayne? Ephesians two, two to three. In which you once lived, following the course of this world, following the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work among those who are disobedient. All of us once lived among them in the passions of our flesh, following the desires of flesh and senses, and we were by nature children of wrath like everyone else. So try to imagine, even in our day, if there was a place where you could go and do whatever you felt like doing, but and, and it would be considered religion. I mean, it blows me to even think about it. Myra? Third and consequentially, consequently, dead in trespasses and sins points to our being utterly unable to overcome the gravitational pull of the black hole of sin. This inability is so because sin has become a pervasive controlling force in our beings, becoming another law waging war in and against us. Romans 7 um, 23 our very nature is affected diseased in an an irremediable way irremediable can't be healed can't be healed way to the point of becoming a body of death Romans 7 wow after reading all of these statements one might be totally depressed or discouraged How could such people ever be elevated by God to enter heaven? It should be obvious that this is an impossible order for us to accomplish on our own. From the Bible Bible study guide, but we cannot resurrect, ascend, and exalt ourselves. For this reason, Paul emphasizes that we are saved by grace. It is totally God's work, initiative, love, mercy, and power. For Paul, this work is the foundation of the gospel. Yet Paul immediately rushes to add that we are saved, 
quote, through faith, end quote, in Ephesians 2.8. While our salvation is, in totality, God's work, God does not save us against our wills. Right. In other words, we have to ask God to come into our lives. We have to say, God, I want this for me. I, I believe this is the right thing. We have to accept it. Yep. Those who are saved will not ascend to heaven or be exalted to the heavenly places by a divine act of predestination. Rather, God's salvation becomes operational in us when we exercise faith. That is, when we accept and receive God's salvation, allowing God's power to resurrect us, to exalt our lives, and to empower us to live in Christ Jesus. From page 52. Our government is spending billions of dollars to try to get somebody to the moon and to Mars, a human being to the moon and to Mars. And God says, I'll do it for free. In fact, I'll take you way beyond Mars. Anybody want to go along? One of the space companies now is figuring that they can give you a trip into space that will last about five or ten minutes for a a cool $200,000. (laughs) Wow. Okay. Jerry? Ephesians 2, 4-5. But God's mercy is so abundant and his love for us is so great that while we were spiritually dead in our disobedience, he brought us to life with Christ. It is by God's grace that you have been saved. Good News Bible. And then Ellen White goes on, It is impossible for us of ourselves to escape from the pit of sin in which we are sunken. Our hearts are evil, and we cannot change them. Quote, Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? Not one. Quote, The carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. Job 14.4, Romans 8.7 Education, culture, the exercise of the will, with human effort, all have their proper sphere. But here they are powerless. They may produce an outward correctness of behavior, but they cannot change the heart. They cannot purify the springs of life. There must be a power working from within, a new life from above before man can be chained from sin to holiness. That power is Christ. His grace alone can quicken the lifeless faculties of the soul and attract it to God, to holiness. Steps to Christ, page 18, paragraph 1. Jim? It is not enough to perceive the loving kindness of God. To kindness. See... Loving kindness. What did I say? Kindness. <laughs> kindness. Sorry. I'm sorry. Of God. To see the benevolence, the fatherly render, tenderness of his character, it is not enough to discern the wisdom and justice of his law to see that it is founded upon the eternal principle of love. Paul, the apostle, saw all this when he exclaimed, I consent unto the law that it is good. The law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. But, he added, in the bitterness of his soul anguished, soul anguish and despair, I am carnal, sold under sin. Romans 7, verses 16 and uh, 12, 12, 14. It's kind of a... He... he, he Put it in a little, she puts it in a little bit different order. Oh, I see. Okay. He, he longed for the purity, the righteousness to which 
in himself he was powerless to attain and cried out, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? Romans 7.24 in the margin. Such is the cry that has gone up from burdened hearts in all the lands and in all ages. To all there is but one answer. Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. John 1.29 from Steps to Christ, page 19. So all those fabulous quotations we've been looking at, all in a couple pages there. Paul reflected this same idea when he said it's referenced above by Helen White. And here are the verses. Carrie? Romans 7, verse 16, 12 and 14. Since what I do is what I don't want to do, this shows that I agree that the law is right. So then, the law itself is holy, and the commandment is holy, right, and good. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual. Soul is a slave to sin. That's from the Good News Bible. So what power could possibly change someone in such a condition to lift him or her to live in God's presence? Jennifer, are you going to help us here? From the Bible Study Guide. What does it mean to be raised with Christ to new life in him? You want to read the next one there as well? Sure. The phrase, quote, by nature children of wrath, points to another daunting reality as well. While still bearers of the image of God, we have come to understand that there is something deeply awry in us. Living the Christian life, then, is not just a matter of conquering a bad habit or two or overcoming whatever, quote, trespasses and sins from Ephesians 2.1 are currently threatening. We do not just contend with sins, but with sin. We are bent toward rebellion against God and toward self-destruction. Humans, by default, are caught in a pattern of self-destructive, sinful behavior following the dictates of Satan and our own innate sinful desires. Believers once were, quote, by nature, the children of wrath. So, it's possible to change someone from our sinful condition to be a child of God. Dwayne? Uh, from Colossians 2.13, You were at one time spiritually dead because of your sins, and because you were Gentiles without the law. without the law. But God has now brought you to life with Christ. God forgave us all our sins. Okay, now I'm going to interrupt for a second. How was How was Paul trained? Where did he come from? He was, had the highest training. Yeah. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was so well regarded in his Phariseeism that he was he was allowed to join the Sanhedrin when he was a very young man. Like I said in our last lesson, he probably had memorized the Old Testament in Hebrew. Okay. What Dwayne just read for us, does that sound like somebody who was raised... A Pharisee. You remember how the the Pharisees, they were too righteous to even associate with Sadducees. You know, they were too righteous to even touch the people. Some of them would walk down the street with a a veil over their heads and run into things. That was because they were too righteous to look on somebody else's wife. 
I'm serious. They were called the bruised and bleeding Pharisees. Well, now we know how why it took so long for Paul on that journey from the road to Damascus. Amazing, amazing. He had amazing. a lot of paradigm changes to happen. You think there. so? Yeah. He had all, all the pieces of scripture together there, but the wrong fruit, view of it. Fruit, fruit basket upset. Myra, well, I think it also states the fact that what we see in someone else may not be what's in their heart. Yeah. They may be acting and looking like the perfect. Okay, Romans 5:17. It is true that through sin of one man death began to rule because of that one man. But how much but how much greater is the result of what was done by that one man, Jesus Christ? All who receive God's abundant grace and are freely put right with him, will rule in life through Christ. Good news, Bible. And then the verse that we've repeated many times. Want to do that? Go ahead. For sin pays the wage, death. But God's free gift of eternal life in union with Jesus Christ, our Lord. Okay. I mean, I don't know how you can make a contrast any greater than that. Sin, death. Jesus Christ, <laughs> life everlasting. Wow. And Romans seven twenty three and 24, Gordon? But I see a different law at work in my body, a law that fights against the law which my mind approves of. It makes me a prisoner to the law of sin which is at work in my body. What an unhappy man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is taking me to death? Good News Bible. Bible study guy says it is for this very reason that Paul notes that only a resurrection can save us from our being dead in sins. I mean, this kind of change, it's got to, it's requiring some kind of amazing process, right? But Paul does not talk about a resurrection akin to the resurrection of the avian phoenix of ancient myth, a bird that has an intrinsic regenerative power. Our death in sin and because of sin is definitive and irreversible. We do not have in us any intrinsic power to revive. Only God who created us can recreate or resurrect us. For Paul, resurrection is not a simple regeneration or of our biological tissues so that we might live for several decades more in the same sinful condition. Rather, Paul's notion of resurrection is a total escape from the damaged power of the world and from the damaging power of the world and from the domination of sin. Paul's belief in resurrection constitutes another kind or quality of life, eternal life. This unique power of renewal was manifested in Christ's resurrection from the dead, Ephesians 1.20, and then given to us in the sense that God invited us to share and partake through the Spirit in Christ's resurrection, Ephesians 2, 5, and 6. In his epistle to the Romans, Paul explains that because sin is such a pervasive force in us, it is inevitable that we die. But because of God's grace, we do not need to die in sin, but to sin. Notice that very significant difference there. We don't need to die in sin, we need to die to sin. Christ died in our place for for our sin. Now in Christ we die, but we die with Christ to sin. Paul then concludes that because we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, 
certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin, for the one who has died is freed from sin. That was a whole two pages from my Bible study guide. It's, it's a challenge to read of something like that, in my opinion. I mean, it's easy to say we died with Christ. What does that mean? Yeah. I mean, I wasn't there on A.D. 31. What does it mean? That I, it means I follow his example. We know that the life and death of Jesus gives us a choice. We can choose to live a life like his life or... We will die the death which he died, which we call the second death, separated from God. Um, I understand, I think, why they use this language. It's, it's to a person who doesn't understand or doesn't, hasn't thought deeply into these issues, it's easy, I, accept, I suspect, to say, well, we died with Christ. Okay, I don't understand that, but let's just say it's true. I mean, it's it's clear that for those who are chosen according to God's, I mean, chose, choose God's way for their lives, we join Him in our, our walk, we are raised with Him to everlasting life, and we are seated with beside Him in the thrones of heaven. Um, it's hard to imagine all that, but it apparently is true. What is Christ died in our place for our sin? What does that mean? Well, that's what I was just trying to. I'm trying to understand. It, it, yeah. It's kind of something made. It's it's very pagan. Well, I I I would say it it could be interpreted as pagan. I I think it's a, something that has been said for the benefit of saying for, saying for so many for for people who so who don't have a chance who don't understand all the issues that are involved. Jerry, I jumped over you. I'm going to ask you to do that Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 3 for me and Ephesians 6. Ephesians 1, 3. Let us give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ for in our union with Christ he has blessed us by giving us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly world. That's good news, by the way. Okay, there's another example. Okay, he's given us every spiritual blessing where? Not here. In the heavenly world. Does that mean... If we get there, we've got the blessings or there's some kind of a bank account being kept up there. What do you think that means? Well, the, want to try? I, I think it's the, the heavenly world is coming down to us in the form of the Spirit and helping us while we're here rather than looking at it, waiting until we get to heaven to get mm-hmm. um, Yeah. Well, that's a good good option. Okay, you want to go ahead? Jerry? I'll continue. Yeah. Yes. Ephesians 3.10. In order that at the present time, by means of the church, the angelic rulers and powers in the heavenly world might learn of his wisdom in all its different forms. Good News Bible. Okay. Now, we're going to struggle with that idea in future lessons. But let's just, let me just point out something. Many of our Christian friends, when they read Ephesians 1 and 3, where it talks about, you know, the whole universe is going to be united together, to them, they think that Paul was talking about 
Gentiles getting together with Jews. We have clearly, and Graham Maxwell led us to this, and Ellen White before him, the idea that that salvation process involves how many? The whole universe. The, in, the whole universe is involved because where did the where did the great controversy get started? It wasn't here. It started in heaven. They were the ones who, I mean, I mean, they every angel must have had friends up there who rebelled against God. Well, when you get Revelation twelve four, it says a third of them. Yeah. Exactly. So, I mean, just, and the rest of the universe must have been had questions. And we have quotations from Alan White, a number of them, that talk about they had questions. And they there was a time when they looked down on this earth and watched all the terrible things that were going down here, and they just said, God, why don't you just wipe these people out and start over again? The angel said that. Okay. Jerry, one more. Yeah, in Ephesians 6.12, For we are not fighting against human beings, but against the wicked spiritual forces in the heavenly world, the rulers, authorities, and cosmic powers of this dark age. Good news, Bible. Okay, now the question that we've asked in different ways, several of us, what do these verses teach about the reality of the great controversy over character's government, God, I'm sorry, over God's character and his form of government? Is this, I mean, the verses say there, cosmic powers, if you read uh, back in there in Revelation 3.10, the angel rulers and powers in the heavenly world might learn of his wisdom in all its different forms. Who is that talking about? Doesn't sound like us here, does it? So what did they learn from the great controversy? They learned that ultimate, via Jesus' death, uh, understood his character, they, mm-hmm. how how other centered he was. Everything he did was yeah. to bring harmony to the, to his creation without force. There, okay, there's two or three things that very clearly they learned. First of all, how does God deal with rebellion? They didn't have to. They had never seen that before. Well, and we learn in the Old Testament there was a lot of rebellion. Yeah. <laughs> and it started in heaven. And and we're all kind of going, okay, so... <laughs> Don't point the fingers at the Old Testament. How about, how about us? Well, right. I'm not excluding us saying we're perfect, <laughs> but there's a lot of examples in the, old, in the Bible. Unfortunately, we read the New Testament through the eyes of what we learned in the Old Testament rather than just the opposite way around. We should learn to read the rest of the Bible from what we learned from the words of Jesus in the in the Gospels. Yeah, I mean... Because the Old Testament has been so twisted and, and so mistranslated so many places and so uh, from a different uh, a pagan paradigm, a really pagan paradigm. Well, and I would say, I don't know if I would go that far, but I, I, would, I would say there's very clearly misunderstandings of God and, and completely misrepresentations of God by people who should have been his proper representatives there in the Old Testament. Yeah, and, well, you've got to remember uh, Jeremiah 8, verse 8, the scribes have made it into, they lie into a law. It's going to be in, into the law yeah. into a lie. Sort of, so. they, but then, uh, Jer- excuse me, Jeremiah six thirteen, even the, the priests and the prophets 
do everything for profit. Yeah, well, and that's what was going on in those involved. days. If money's involved, you better check, follow the money, and find out yeah. where the problem lies. Okay. So do we panic? At some time, how can we draw comfort? At the same time, how can we draw comfort and hope and the knowledge that Jesus, been, Jesus has been victorious and that we can share in his victory now? Do we believe that the great controversy is real? Do we believe that the great controversy is won? How does that share in the, in the victory now? How does that work? Well, that's what, I'm, that's what I'm trying to figure out. How much Does the rest of the universe know already how the great controversy is going to end? They do. They know that Christ is, is Christ died the second death. And they know that people who remain on the devil's side and persist on the devil's side are going to die that kind of death. And they know that Jesus, those who choose to move on or, or join God's side are going to be saved. Um, it's a little hard for us to see that as we look around us. Well, in believing that the great controversy is real and that the universe understands that we, that Christ in his resurrection won the great controversy. That was 2,000 years ago. Yes. What are we waiting for? Well, we must never underestimate the skills of the devil. By rising from the grave and coming forth in his immortal body, Jesus Christ has proven that God can do that. God can do the same even for repentant sinners. What does it mean to be saved by grace through faith? Okay, Jim? Substitute the word saved. Substitute the word healed. Yeah? By a gracious God through education. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, you want to read that next one, Bible study guide? When Paul says that we are saved by grace through faith in Ephesians 2.8, he does not say that we are saved only by grace or only by faith. The two always work together in salvation. However, they do have an essential sequential order of operation. In the gospel, it is not faith that generates grace. Faith is not an inner energy of ours that gives us life and power, that elevates us to God, that changes God's disposition toward us, or that generates salvation. Rather, for Paul, faith occurs or is born and becomes operational when God, excuse me, in us when God offers us his grace. Romans 10, 17. Grace generates faith. Faith is our reception of God's grace manifested in us from the Bible study guide. So we believe that faith is just a word we use to describe a relationship with God as with a friend. So when God demonstrates his grace, when he demonstrates all that he's willing to does and is willing to do for us, how do we respond? We can we can rebel, we can reject it, but if we take any kind of a rational approach, we should respond in love to that. And that response to God is called faith. So, what does the Bible tell us about that, Carrie? Uh, Romans 10, is that it? Mm-hmm. I was thinking about something else with this. 
Romans 10, 17. So faith comes from what is heard, and what is heard comes through the word of Christ. That's from the so, Bible Standard Version. God beams his... By all, well, like Jim said earlier, Hebrews 1, God tries every way possible to communicate with us. But the ultimate way was through the life and death of Jesus Christ. So, Jennifer? From the Bible Study Guide, this understanding has at least two major implications. First, faith is not and cannot be meritorious. In fact, even faith is a gift from God, because God offers us all the possibility of receiving His grace. Both grace and faith are the gifts of God. For this reason, Paul emphasizes that our works do not have any role in producing our salvation. Rather, we, as saved people, are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. These good works, therefore, are not ours. They are not generated by the genius or power of our faith. Rather, they were prepared by God beforehand so that we would walk in them. So God has a plan for each one of our lives. He knows what he would like us to do. Okay? Go ahead. Second, Paul joins justification with sanctification in an inextricable relation. While justification means we are clothed in Christ's righteousness... Sanctification means we are clothed in Christ's robe of good works and are walking in it. Okay, one more. Third, grace and faith are the foundation of the unity of the church, which is one of the central themes of Paul's theology of the church. The church is united in the same experience of receiving the divine revelation of grace and in the same experience of accepting and embracing it in faith, one faith. In this experience, all church members are equal. Again, the church is not a multi-tiered society in which some members are better Christians because they received more grace. The church is not divided into camps of more spiritual or less spiritual members according to the degree of their faith. Excuse me for just a second. Has that ever happened in the past history of the Christian church? (laughs) Myra, don't just laugh. (laughs) How many times have we... I mean, down through the history, you know? Well, some of us are up here, and the rest of you are down there, right? Yeah. Wow. Okay, go ahead. Rather, the entire church is founded on and united in the same grace and the same acceptance of that grace in faith. In Ephesians 4, 7... Paul seems to talk about various degrees or types of grace. Here, though, he does not speak of salvific grace, but about the diversity of the spiritual gifts for the edification of God's church and for the accomplishment of its mission. So, again, he's saying here, God's grace has given us to save us, but not just to save us. In the process, he gives us gifts that make us able to participate with others in spreading the gospel to other people. So that's what he's talking about now. Go ahead. Also, when in 1 Corinthians 12, 9, Paul says that the Spirit gives faith to some, he refers to the same topic of the spiritual gifts and not to the salvific faith given to all humans. Yeah, I've heard some really twisted arguments trying to figure that out. No, 
he gives faith to he give, he gives the ability to have faith the relation a possibility of relationship with God to all of us but then in a special sense he gives you know faith to some people who have ability to really understand it and really pass it along and so forth at a deeper level and a lot of that is how it works rather than faith you could say yeah. persuasion mm-hmm. and the most important command there was it in mark and was also in Deuteronomy 6, is to listen. Mm-hmm. And if you don't want to listen, there's not much can be done for you. Okay, we're running out of time. Duane, you want to take that next verse for us, a couple of verses? Ephesians 2, 6 and 7. In our union with Christ Jesus, he raised us up with him to rule with him in the heavenly world. He did this to demonstrate for all time to come the extraordinary greatness of his grace in the love he showed us in Christ Jesus. So Paul in this section, in Ephesians, is trying to say to us, by our baptism, we are buried and raised with Jesus Christ. That was his first idea. Then he says, as a result of that, when Jesus comes again, we're going to be raised from the dead or translated from the living to exalted to heaven, taken to heaven. And then three, we're going to, when we get there, we're going to have positions around the throne of God, representing God's grace and love and kindness to the rest of the universe. That's what God has planned for us to do. And if you want to look at the rest of this, you can look on our website, theox.org. That's T-H-E-O-X dot O-R-G. Let's pray. Our wonderful Father, what a marvelous promise we see here in Ephesians. What a glorious thing it is that you have done with taking us worthless pieces of, you know, nothing, really, and you want to transform us into sons and daughters in your very presence, living with you, enjoy spreading the good news about you to the rest of the universe. It's, we can't even fathom how you can make that kind of transformations, but we claim it, we want to be a part of it. May it be so, and may it be so soon is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.